Here's our teacher and pastor, Steve Converse, as we begin today's broadcast of Graceful Truth, turning our eyes once again towards that marvelous book of Romans. This good news is not new news. It's not new news. This isn't something I came up with. No, this is the good news of God. This is something that's been around. God promised it beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. We call it good news, and what we should be calling it is amazing, incredible, awe-inspiring news. It's the news of Jesus Christ, what God has done. Hi there, and welcome to today's broadcast of Graceful Truth. We're continuing our look at the book of Romans, and today we focus on the good news, the description of the good news, the dimensions, the declaration, and the promise. Join us. Here's our teacher and pastor once again, Steve Converse with today's program. As we turn to the book of Romans, I'm reminded of what the late, great uh, British preacher said, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He opened up a sermon on Paul out of the book of Romans with the phrase, the gospel of God. And he went on and he was stating his fear that a lot of times we become as Christians so familiar with certain words in the church, such as the word gospel. Or we become so academic in our approach to them that it doesn't really move us anymore. We just kind of throw the word out there like any other word. We have to be reminded that what we're going to look at this morning, God's great gospel, and we're going to look at basically uh, what it says in the first four verses of Romans. We'll be reading verses 1 through 7. I hope that God uses these verses, this message today in your life so that when you leave here today that you're going to be deeper in love with him than you were when you came in. The gospel of God basically is the theme of Romans, the whole book. And Paul describes it here for us in the first several verses. When you look at verses 1 through 7, it's kind of a hard text to really sit down and to to diagram out Because it's one long and difficult sentence. And it it seems that it's very difficult to really uh, find your way through that in the original language. And in verse 1, Paul begins by identifying himself. And then he describes what he calls the gospel or the good news of God in verses 2 through 4. That's what we're going to be looking at today. But then he explains how the gospel goes to the nations. Not just to the Jews, but to the nations, to the Gentiles through his apostleship in verses 5 and 6. And then in verse 7, he kind of closes out that section there, and he greets the saints in Rome. Now, we're just going to be looking at verses one or 2 through 4. Last week, we looked at verse 1. The last couple weeks, we gave an introduction to the book of Romans. And we want to understand that as we come into this book and we understand the gospel or the good news of Christ... A lot of people don't understand what the good news is. They don't understand that God has allowed us to not only be saved from our depravity and sin, but he has also allowed us to have a relationship with him. Pascal said that in every man there's a God-shaped vacuum. And that's true. And you say, well, how do you know it's true? Just look at all the different religions that are out there. Everybody's trying to come up with some way to connect with their deity. 
I think God put in us as his creation a longing, a yearning to know him. And man's eternal soul is made in such a way that it doesn't really rest until that is complete. And you just look around the world and you see the different religious systems that people have invented. And the issue isn't really, beloved, whether man will worship, because men worship all the time. The question is, what will he worship? Who will he worship? Because man, in our own fallen, sinful, perverse nature, we reject the true God just by default. And when we reject the true God, the Bible says that we come up with forms of God in our own minds, in our own making, it says. But such little gods provide no help for us, especially when we find ourselves in the situation of the sinful depravity, the prison in which we are in. And that's the basic problem of any man is sinfulness. And we want to know how we can escape from that. If you get sick and you're diagnosed with a fatal disease, the first question is, was there any help? Is there any way that a doctor can prescribe something to make this go away? Beloved, we have to understand that man is imprisoned in their normal state. He's imprisoned in the clutches and the chains of sin. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not anybody in this room who could say, oh, you know what? I've never sinned. And if you did, you'd be lying, so that would be a sin. (laughs) It's impossible for us to escape that prison of sin because it's a prison of sin that's in the natural. And the natural, the Bible says, cannot enter into the supernatural. It's impossible. And so because we want out of this system of imprisonment, we try to find ways to wiggle out of it, wiggle out of the chains of sin, wiggle out of the prison of sin. And in a lot of religions, basically, what they would say is, you know, if you're just a good person, sooner or later you're going to discover God. And you just be good and you just do the good things in life, do your little routines, your little rituals, whatever it is, and eventually you'll meet God. I'm here to tell you, beloved, that no matter what we are led to believe by those outside of Christ, we can't simply transform ourselves into being good. And the reason I know that is because we've fallen into a trap of thinking that sin is something that we do. When you think of sin, don't you think of something, you think of a list of things, adultery, lying, stealing, that's what we think of, just automatically, that's our default. And so we think somehow if we cannot do those things, then we'll be less sinful. (laughs) We'll be better in God's eyes. And we fall into the trap of thinking that somehow if if we do all the right things in the right order and do everything good, then God will look down and say, okay, in spite of your sin, I'm going to love you because you're doing a good job. Someone once said that a lot of people believe that they have to do the dance to get the hug from God. If you don't do a dance, you don't get any hug. If you don't perform, God's not going to love you. And that's not true. Sin is not something we do, beloved. Sin is something that we are. That's what we are. Paul described it as being in his flesh. It's a disease. It's taken over our our systems, 
our bodies, our thoughts, our minds, our motivations, our intentions, everything. And I'm here to tell you that Christ is the only way that we can ever hope of getting out of that prison, those chains that, that, that bind us. See, the difference between Christianity and other world religions is basically this. Christianity acknowledges that man can't get out of his prison on his own. doesn't matter what you do. You can come to church 365 days. Now, that may help you understand the Bible more. That may help you fellowship with other people, but it's not going to help you have your sins forgiven just by coming to church or by praying or by reading the Bible or by doing anything. The good news, beloved, is that God has come down and invaded our prison. He's come down and he said, you know what? I don't want you to be imprisoned anymore. The good news of Christianity is that since God can't, or since man can't get out of this prison, God came into it. Have you ever gone to visit anybody in a prison or a jail? Not a very pleasant experience. Yeah, I go through all kinds of security, and then finally when you meet the person, usually they're on the other side of a piece of glass. You've got to talk to them through this gross little phone. <laughs> you don't have the freedom in a prison to just line up an interview with somebody and say, hey, come by and visit me. No, you, you're, you're restricted. They restrict who comes and sees you. They restrict the times. They restrict how long. They restrict what you're allowed to bring to that person, if anything. That's our condition. See, the good news is that, that God came down to earth because the natural cannot enter into the supernatural, but the supernatural can condescend to the natural. That's what Jesus Christ did. That's the good news of the gospel. The fact that our God came down to us. He didn't say, hey, yeah, I'm sitting up here. Now you've got to figure out a way to get up here. That's what world religions do. World religions basically tell us, you know what, it's man's kind of understanding and kind of concluding and trying to figure out a way to get to God. And so they say, you know what, if you do this, every religion has a couple little steps. If you do this, if you do that, one, two, three, four, then you're in good favor with God. And the Bible says no. There's no way we can have any favor with God outside of the way he prescribed and that's through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what Paul speaks of here. Paul spoke of the good news of the gospel in various texts. In 1 Timothy 1.11, he says, According to the glorious gospel, or the glorious good news of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust, he felt God had committed the good news of the gospel to him. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Paul said, The ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of grace of God. Or in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Down in verse 16 of Romans chapter 1, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God unto salvation. This is good news. This is news that we should be excited about. This is news that should transform the way we live, transform the way we communicate, transform the way we reached out to a lost and dying world. 
He uses different terms to emphasize different aspects of the gospel throughout Romans. In verse 16 of chapter 2, he says, The day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Look at that. Isn't that interesting? He calls it my gospel. He possesses it. And the reason he possesses it is because he wants people to know that this good news of Christ came into his possession by faith. That it was his gospel to preach. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, he says, I'm determined not to know anything among you, when he's speaking to the Corinthians, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22, he says, I am made all things to all men, that I may by all means save some. And why does he do it? He says right there, and this I do for the gospel's sake. See, we have to understand, God has come into our world to tell us what he himself is like. And to tell us how we can know him in a personal way. Jesus Christ is the most incredible person in all human history. The declaration of the good news has changed forever the landscape of the world in which we live. You don't have to look very hard to find whether it's philosophers or painters or poets, musicians, who have been impacted by the gospel of Christ and have created incredible pieces of artwork or or pieces of music or statues or poetry. And it's all for the glory of God because they've been affected by the gospel. We can honestly say that Jesus Christ has affected human history and human society like no other human being who ever lived. And that's the good news. That's what we should be excited about. And what makes it good news, to be honest with you, is the fact that we don't deserve it. (laughs) See, if we deserved it, then it'd be okay news. You know what I'm saying? But good news is when you don't deserve something. You know, it's when you're driving your car and you see the little flashing light, right? You look down and you're going, oh man, I'm going too fast. And they hit the siren, you pull over, and the officer comes up. You know why I stopped you? License and registration, please. And you go through the whole deal. And at the end of the conversation, the officer looks at you and he goes, slow down, sir, have a good day. That's good news. <laughs> right? That's good news. Now, I'm not saying because I get a lot of tickets or anything like that. I haven't had tickets in years, you know. But I'm just telling you that I've been through that situation. And there's nothing like that officer saying, have a good day, sir. And you want to say, you're not going to write me a ticket? You know, you're not going to give me what I deserve? That's good news. It kind of lifts your spirit. You, you drive away, boy, I'm going, to, I'm going to be careful. And boy, this is good, you know. This is a good day. God's granted favor on me. I didn't get the ticket that I deserved. Well, let's turn our hearts to God's word in Romans chapter 1. And I just want to read for us verses 1 through 7. And then we're going to look more specifically at verses 2 through 4. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, a servant. We looked at this last week. It means a slave of Christ Jesus. He was called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, according to his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, 
and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing I want us to look at here this morning is within those seven verses, kind of one giant verse in the original text, but in that it basically contains the gospel. It not only is that, it's basically an outline of the whole book of Romans. It's like Paul's writing this thing and his thoughts just pour out of his, out of his mind so fast he just kind of writes down a, a, a brief version of what this whole letter is about. God's able to do that. He's able to summarize and emphasize things in a very succinct way. You think of the law, the Ten Commandments. There's only 297 words that make all those Ten Commandments up. Very succinct. And here, Paul, God through Paul, gives us a very succinct kind of picture of what the gospel is all about. And it starts off there in verse 1, and we're not going to go over this because we already have, but verse 1, it talks about the preacher of the good news. Who is it? Paul. He's a servant. He's an apostle. He's set apart by Jesus Christ. And in verse 2, he says, which he promised. This is what we want to look at today, the promise of the good news. See, if, if there was no promise in the good news, it really wouldn't be good news. If the doctor comes to you and says, well, you know what, bad news is you got this disease. The good news is you're going to die. Well, that's not good news. There's no promise in that. But if he said the good news is there's a cure, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. That would be good news. He's promising you something. It says here, the gospel which he had promised God had promised before by his, prof by his prophets. What Paul is saying here, very simply, is that, you know what? This good news is not new news. <laughs> it's not new news. This isn't something I came up with. No, this is the good news of God. This is something that's been around. God promised it beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. See, there was a lot of folks in Jesus' time that were pointing to Jesus and saying, you know what? Who does this guy think he is? He's coming up and he's saying all these new things. Everything is new. He's trying to create a new religion. He's trying to create a new following after himself. And the world religions of Jesus' day, mainly the, the Pharisees, they, they took issue with this. They looked at Jesus, this Galilean, and said, who do you think you are? Marching into our territory and claiming to be the Messiah. you got to be kidding me. And these people who are following you? Fishermen. They're not like us. We're Pharisees. We're religious people. See, he denied the Pharisees' so-called devotion because of its hypocrisy. 
The Pharisees were those who would dress up in their robes and go out on the corner and clasp their hands in deep in prayer so everybody could see them. The Pharisees were the ones who made sure everybody saw what they put in the offering. The Pharisees were the ones who went to the meetings just to be seen by other people. Many in Jesus' time were saying, is what Jesus teaching us new truth? Is he really speaking for God? Because he's not really saying what we've been taught through the Pharisees. What's going on here? As a matter of fact, a lot of times he says exactly the opposite, doesn't he? Look over in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22. Matthew 5, 21 and 22. Jesus had a lot of confrontations with the Pharisees, with the religious people of his day. And this was one of them. Matthew 5. Verse 21 and 22. Look at what he says. You have heard. This is how he always started off his conversations. You've heard. Well, heard it from who? From the Pharisees. He's speaking to the people and he's saying, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But look at verse 22. But I say to you, Whoa, wait a minute. This is something new. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Wow. What's he saying? He's saying, you've heard it said. Well, where did they hear it said? See, the Pharisees, the Jews were given stewardship of the word of God. They were to take the word of God and to spread it. Well, they didn't do that. They took the word of God and they kind of hoarded it to themselves. And when they really began to understand what the word of God said, they realized there's no way anybody could keep all these rules and regulations. So let's make up some that we can keep. And they came up with kind of an oral tradition. That's where all of a lot of the ridiculous rules and regulations of Judaism come from. It doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from... They're religious teachers who couldn't deal with what the Bible really said, so they had to come up with something they could follow. So on the Sabbath, it's unlawful to work. So what does that mean? Well, you can't pick up a stick if it's so big and carry it so far. Ridiculous. The Word of God doesn't say that. They came up with this because then they, as religious leaders, could use that to kind of browbeat the people into submission under them. And so when Jesus said, you've heard that it was said of old, he was saying, you know what? Your tradition teaches you this. I was raised in a church where tradition basically taught me, you know what? You come to church, you come to mass on Sunday and do whatever you want the rest of the week. It doesn't matter as long as you go to confession. And tradition said that you had to go to the church and you enter into this little room and lift up this little screen and you kneel down. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been so long since my last confession. You go through this rigmarole. Then the priest tells you, well, okay, here's what you have to do. Go say five Hail Marys and four Our Fathers, and you're good to go. Okay, and you leave the little box, and you go out, and you kneel down, and you pray, or at least act like you're praying, and rip through these prayers, because you're in a hurry. You want to get out of there. And you're good to go. That's what tradition taught me. And I believed that till I was 19 years of age. <laughs> Until someone said, what do you do about the verse that says none are good, that everybody has sinned? 
When somebody first told me that I needed to become a Christian, I said, are you out of your mind? I'm Catholic. I'm a Catholic. Don't tell me I need to become a Christian. And then God took his word and he began to show me, wait a minute, it's not about what church you go to. It's not about what you call yourself. That has nothing to do with the issue of sin in your life. That has nothing to do with the idea that you owe a debt that you cannot pay and that Christ paid a debt that he didn't know and that he wants to know you. He died for you. He desires to reconcile you to the Father. That was good news. Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. We trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. Or give us a call at 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth. Graceful Truth.